whether the film's good or bad or indifferent is up for other people to say, but, but I want people to know that I've gone to the mat for the film and, and we've, we've done the best we possibly can. Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, I'm Josh Horowitz, and I'm thrilled beyond belief to welcome back for the third time. He's a glutton for punishment. He's only one of the greatest filmmakers on the planet. And uh, again, he raises the bar with his newest film, Christopher Nolan, We're Talking Oppenheimer. Welcome back to the podcast, sir. Thank you. Um, we have a lot to talk about. This is a this is a rich film that we could have 25 different conversations. We'll have one or two today. Um, first of all, what does it mean? What do you hope your name means on a film to an audience member at this point in your career? Wow, that's a tough one to answer. What do I? I mean, I hope it means a commitment to the technical side of the film and to the creative side that that we're trying to make the best film possible. So I suppose really, I mean, I've always said sincerity is the key thing with a filmmaker. Like if you go to see a film and if you, if you think that the people who made that film have genuinely made the best film that they possibly can, right. then I don't feel I've wasted my time, no matter what the film is, no matter how it is. And so I would certainly want people to expect that and, and trust that from me that, you know, whatever, whether the film's good or bad or indifferent is up for other people to say, but but I want people to know that I've gone to the mat for the film and, and we've, we've done the best we possibly can. At this point in, career, uh, in your career, I, I assume you, look, you have your methodologies and your inner circle of people that you trust. I'm, I'm just curious, like, is it, is it your producing partners, your wife? Like, who do you show the film to? At the, when you get in the, in the last stages, mm -hmm. are you the type of filmmaker that would ever show a film to another filmmaker you admire? Or is that at this point in, the, this, in your career, you kind of like, you can trust your gut and have people that can call you out if there is a question that needs to be questioned. I mean, I think every filmmaker has a different process. Yeah. And um, the studios try to impose a certain process on a lot of filmmakers that's time-honored, you know, for a uh, hundred years of, of, of doing this, involving research screenings and so forth. Um, some filmmakers will show uh, their films to other filmmakers, or right. God forbid, critics. Or, <laughs> uh, but it, I, you know, there's I a lot of notes, Christopher. I was going to say there's a, there's a lot of different ways to, to skin that cat, and and you know everybody's different. Yeah. Um, but there are advantages and disadvantages to each way of doing those things. And what I try to do is use the thing that works for me, and the peculiar magic of of cinema is based on its combination of subjective experience, like a novel. You can be in the first person, you can be, you know, um, watching, the, watching a film uh, with a very, very personal response, like reading a book. But you also have this empathetic response that you share with the rest of the audience. Yeah. And that's what makes film unique. There's no other form. The theater doesn't have that because it has the one, it has the audience, but it doesn't have that same intense subjectivity of narrative information coming across. And so cinema combines both those things. So in terms of how I go about sort of finishing the film, checking the work, you know, you, you look for, okay, how do I get that empathetic response? How do I gauge how that's working? And what Emma and I have found over the years works well for us is to, you know, start watching the film ourselves at the end of every editing week and bring in 
individuals, people who don't haven't read the script, don't know, like one person at a time, right. and just watch the film with them. And a lot of the, the benefit of that isn't so much the conversation afterwards. It isn't putting people on the spot and saying what worked, what didn't work. It's that there's a magical process whereby you'll watch the film through that person's eyes yeah. very much. And it, it shows you your film in a different way. And then when you talk to the person afterwards, you'd be shocked how many times the things that that person raises are the things you thought yourself while you were watching it with them. Uh, it's a really magical process. And so we start from that point of view and then we will, it's important to watch every, important to me to watch every film with a larger group too, to do test screenings, but without scoring the film sure. or, or submitting yourself to a sort of intensive research process. But you want to sit in the room with you know a couple hundred people and, and feel how the movie plays. That's an important part of it. So I want to talk about the Mr. Robert Oppenheimer, your protagonist in this, who, who follows in a line of um, conflicted, obsessive protagonists for you. And th there's, there's no, I don't know, greater moral quandary, no greater inner conflict, I, I think, possible <laughs> to a human being than the one that this man faced. Um, when this material was presented to you, uh, the book, The Life, The Prospect of, of Dealing With It, did you, did you immediately know what your way in was what story you wanted to tell about Robert Oppenheimer? I mean, I think I knew a bit about Oppenheimer. Uh, the thing that had stuck the most in my mind about Oppenheimer was, you know, the moment in the Manhattan Project where they realized with their calculations that there's this possibility that in triggering the first atomic device that they'd set fire to the atmosphere and destroy the entire world. Um, and I included that as analogy, really, or as example in Tenet. In Tenet, we try and use the example of Oppenheimer, that notion that they might have set fire to the, to the world in that way, uh, as analogy for the science fiction events of the story. Right. Um, and I think at the end of that film, you know, I was left with an interest in that particular moment. Um, it was like, okay, what if rather than using it as science fiction analogy, what if we actually try and take the audience into that room, you know, for that that moment? You know, what what would that be? It's interesting because we've talked before about some influences on your work, and like many, two thousand one is was an important influence. And I, and I was watching the film, and some of the early sequences of kind of in, in Oppenheimer's head recalled for me. Stargate sequence at the end of 2001. Did that, did that, was that resonate at all in terms of what, I don't know, is, is that just an unconscious, un, unconscious influence at this point in your, in your work, you think? I mean, it's unconscious conscious, it's foundational. It's like, you know, one of my, one of my earliest movie experiences, you know, one of the most inspiring early experiences as, as a film goer is that Stargate sequence, is, yeah. is going to see 2001 on that enormous screen. Um, and feeling that incredible tactile sense of, of acceleration through that uh, imagery, through that light and sound. Uh, and so I think that sort of carries with me as some idea of what are the, the mechanical possibilities of cinema? What can that big screen make you feel or make you experience? And, and when I spoke to Andrew Jackson, my visual effects supervisor, who was one of the first people I showed the script to, because I said, can you approach you know, looking at quantum mechanics, trying to show the energy of atoms and all the rest. Can you not do that with computer graphics? Can we apply that 
showing that thought process of visualizing that energy and then indeed you know taking that through to the trinity test and, right. and the great destructive power that that gets magnified into uh, can we portray these things without um, without computer graphics without animation and i think the stargate sequence one of the things that you know a few years ago when we did our uh, Hoyter and myself, we collaborated in what we call our unrestoration of 2001, where we just had, we went back to an old film element and printed the film exactly as it would have been seen by audiences at the time. Yeah. Uh, the striking thing about that light show that Douglas Trumbull put together, that, that brilliance of it, is that it's very invigorating and threatening and frightening because it's somehow real. It's somehow something that's photographed in camera. And I think that. The issue with computer graphics for me is they're incredibly versatile, so it's a very seductive form. But there's a there's a slightly anodyne, slightly safe quality to computer graphics. It's almost it's too hard. perfect. That it it's almost too perfect. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's there's also that kind of absolute realization on the part of um, an audience of what's animation and what's something that's being photographed, whether or not the thing being photographed is the actual thing, or whether it's a miniature representation or a, yeah. or a more abstract representation. And so Andrew went off and immediately started looking at, okay, what are the different things at different scales, uh, different ways of portraying uh, particles, waves of energy, those kind of things. How can we get that across? Uh, and really it was about tactility. It was really about trying to tap into that um, that sense of abstraction. I mean, it's funny. I don't think I was that conscious of the influence of 2001 on this film in particular, but when you mention it, it's like, well, of course. Right. Um, certainly in terms of methodology, it was very much an influence because they, you know, Trumbull and Kubrick and all the people involved, they did a lot of stuff with very, very small elements, you yes. know, oil and water and sort of that kind of thing in a way that they never fully explained. Uh, so we weren't able to copy it completely. <laughs> had, to, had to go our own way. But they, um, they kept the secrets very close to the chest, but it was about a confusion of scale. It was about the macro and the micro, the, the absolute miniature to portray the cosmos. And that confusion of scale is a part of the story of Oppenheimer. Right. It's the visualization of the energy between and amongst molecules, particles, um, and the magnification of that and how it, you know, in the universe, uh, stars, black holes, things like that, how they're defined by the same rules. And then when you start to unleash that power, the cosmic size of, of the forces. So there, there is a deliberate confusion of scale in the visualization of these things. Uh, that I, yeah, I think it does relate to that methodology in that film. Uh, I'd love to talk a bit about um, your approach to casting in this, and we'll talk about Killian, but I also want to just like take a step back and, and look at this uh, remarkable <laughs> ensemble that you've uh, collected that I've seen to some of, someone before, you know, I grew up in kind of the heyday of like Oliver Stone, and I always think of like JFK and Nixon and how like he cast every particular, like they were movie <laughs> stars, but they were great actors. And like, yeah. there was something delicious about that. And I mean, I think back to, I mean, I'm, I think you talked about this when you were doing Batman Begins and when you were mm. producing Man of Steel, like the approach of what Donner did of kind of like filling every role with yeah. top-notch, A-list, amazing actors and movie stars. And that, and that kind of elevates the entire material. Yeah. Um, is is that I guess it's just like how do you cast at this point and is that does that like has that has that philosophy changed over the years or, or why in this case um, did it suit the material to kind of cast in the way that you did? I mean, it's interesting. You go back to those examples that that you know we go back to Dick Donner's Superman and the feeling of watching you know even the trailer for that you know I was a, a little kid 
you know, and seeing, you know, Marlon Brando, you know, I mean, all these incredible actors that, that make up that cast. Um, very much that was how we tried to get a sense of importance and scale into Batman Begins and yeah. some of my other films. Um, but in the case of Oppenheimer, it's also, it's not just about stars. Uh, we have an incredible cast, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, Rami Malek, Gary Oldman. I mean, it's, it's a long list. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but it's also a distinctive list. It's a list of very distinct yeah. talents of people. And a lot of the smaller actors that people won't be so familiar with. Um, they're there, and what they're helping me with is we're working from a point of view of historical reality, and I did not feel comfortable creating a film with composite characters. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to take something that Louis Alvarez has done and right. combine that with Robert Serber, you know, whatever. What I wanted was, you know, Alex Wolf to come along and play Alvarez, and, and you recognize him as a, as a great, distinct talent, and, um, you know, you have these people come in, they don't necessarily have a lot of screen time in the film, but you remember them, you recognize them, and you recognize their sort of contribution to yes. the, the overall. And that was very important to the feel and the makeup of the ensemble. And my casting director, John Papasadera, who I've worked with since Memento, uh, he's just one of the great casting directors who can put together uh, an incredible cast of, of interesting faces and voices. and. Um, you know, really, really bring uh, wonderful energy to the table. I loved seeing, um, you know, some of the returning actors, but also some folks that you've kind of flirted with working with in the past. Um, Josh Hartnett, legend has it, was someone that you considered for Batman way back when. Is that true? Did you screen test him or even offer him the role of Batman? No, it never, never got that far. I mean, I mean, I met with with Josh, and as I recall, um, you know, he was somebody. Uh, he was a young actor whose whose work I was very interested in, uh, and I, I, you know, I had an initial conversation with him. But he was more interested. In, he'd read my uh, my brother's script for the Prestige at the time, oh. and was sort of more interested in getting involved with with that. So it, it, it never kind of went further than that. Um, but uh, he was a, a young actor who we're paying a lot of attention to, and, and I think his work over the years and the last few years, he's done some really interesting things and really looked to stretch himself. Uh, so, you know, I was really pretty excited to get him to come and play Ernest Lawrence. He shares a lot of things with, with Lawrence as a character and you know, where they're from, the sort of backgrounds and things, and uh, I, th I think he does a really great job in the film. Um, as does, again, we could go down the, the list, but I do want to mention Robert Downey Jr. because, I mean, yeah. as a long-time Downey fan, to see him, look, I love Iron Man, I'll watch him play Iron Man until the end of time, and I did, yeah. I feel like, but to see him kind of do something different and kind of let go of vanity and play a really different kind of a role for him, uh, was delicious. I mean, we can yeah. never forget, at the end of the day, this guy is one of our truly brilliant actors. Um, yeah, very much. I mean, I thought when Favreau had the insight to cast him as Iron Man, I mean, that's one of the great, it's one of the greatest casting decisions in the history of movies. Yeah. And uh, you look at what that did and where that went with, with everything. Um, and I think that was John just knowing what an incredible actor, what incredible potential it was. Yeah. Uh, from Downey, and then the movie star charisma, that wonderful charisma comes into play. What was cool about getting to work with Downey on this project was to be able to go to him and say, okay, put that charisma, put that, that movie star thing to one side for a second and just lose yourself in this real life human being who is so complex and has such an incredible 
part to play in Oppenheimer's story. Uh, and to watch him just sort of go back to that, that genius as, as an actor, just finding the truth in another human being and, and presenting it and the, the things he does in the film. I think a lot of his fan base are going to be extremely surprised. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool to see somebody who's achieved such greatness as a movie star then pivot completely and stretch themselves in a way that a lot of people haven't seen him do. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. We've talked before about kind of like your realization at some point in, career, in your career that like kind of the cross-cutting technique, especially in, in your, towards the end of your films, you found um, one plus one equal, uh, you know, more than two. It, it, there was an additive quality of kind of um, going back and forth, and you've played with that in different ways throughout your films. I'm curious, like, do you remember what that goes back to? Like, I think back to like the end of the Godfather films where Coppola just did that to such an exceptional. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I would. I think I came to The Godfather a little later than that. I think for me, there are a few sort of key creative things that, that stuck in my head with it, with that. Uh, one of which was literary. is a book I had to read in school. It was a marvelous novel by uh, Graham Swift called Waterland that has different timelines and, and cross cuts. And I was reading that, I think the first time I ever saw Alan Parker's Pink Floyd The Wall, mm. which has an extraordinary visual version of that mixing of timelines and cross-cutting, but then also feeding in elements from one to the other. Uh, at the same time, I was looking a lot at the films of Nicholas Rogue um, and the brilliant editing of those, which is sometimes very, very impressionistic. And, right. and so I think those sorts of things were key drivers for me in terms of really wanting to look at non-chronological narratives or cross-cutting within a chronology right. so that you're, uh, and the example you use with Godfather is a perfect example of, yeah, how you, you can jump between timelines and have that add up to, to more than the sum of its parts. It's also, from a filmmaking point of view, it's marvelously practical because a lot of the challenge you face with making a film in it given period of time, you know, how long you have the location for, where the actors are, whatever, is the, the continuity and the absolute continuity of the sequence that you have to get in the can. Right. Just the number of setups sure. and the rest. If you know that you have the ability to cross cut with other timelines, it's very freeing. You can be a little more careless about your coverage. You could think a little bit more about the individual moment and not worry so much about, okay, the do I have... The, uh, yeah. Exactly, do I have the bit where he opens the door and walks in and sits down, are we gonna know where the coffee cup came from or whatever, that stuff. You, you get to be a bit freer with that. Yeah, um, and, and, I mean, in a way, like, I mean, I can't, I've only seen the movie once, but like a, the, the first section of the movie feels just like extended montage and you're kind of like lost. In, yeah. And it's kind of like a dreamlike quality that kind of immerses you. Yeah, um, we're trying to pack a lot of passage of time, a lot of thought, a lot of, experience on this character's part into um, 
a very short space of time. And yeah. so using montage and musical montage and that in a hopefully very focused way, that's the idea anyway, you well, know, try and get a, get a lot in. And, and speaking of, you know, of immersion, we haven't talked about the IMAX, um, which obviously you're a great proponent of. And like, mm. we have very rarely, if ever, seen, I feel, IMAX used to this kind of effect. And we've talked about the spectacle of this film and the Trinity test, et cetera. But the truth is a lot of this film is also um, on Killian's face, on that yes. remarkable face. <laughs> the, yeah. One of your greatest special effects is his eyes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but talk to me a little bit about using IMAX in the service of, of drama, of just great drama, classic drama. And yeah. part of you hope that others take advantage of that. I mean, you're, you're in rarefied air where you, you know, you can, you can, you can use it, but um, you'd be curious to see others use it to that effect. I, I live for the day when I get to go and see some other filmmaker make something on, on IMAX film and actually cut those negatives and print it and, yeah. you know, with the photochemical process because it's a really powerful tool for immersion. It's a really powerful tool for the, the emotional connection with the, the material. And I'd love to see uh, filmmakers work, other filmmakers working that way. I think there's often this confusion in the way we talk about film and the language that the, the sales language that we invoke, we talk about epic and big, you know, all these sorts of things. But the thing about the movie screen is it's the same size for any movie, if you know what I mean. Right. And so cinema can be anything, and it could tell any kind of story. And the particular cameras we use, the reason they're well suited to a large scale story is because of their clarity of vision and the wonderful analogy that, that they have between the way the human eye sees and the way that events are recorded on film. And that applies to any kind of storytelling, like sure. any filmmaker is going to benefit from that. Uh, so no, I, I strongly encourage any filmmaker I'm, I'm talking to to try and uh, shoot photochemically and hopefully large format photochemically because the uh, the imagery is beautiful and it's just fun to do and it lends itself to, to any kind of storytelling of any scale. You're 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 one of a handful of filmmakers that is recognizable to a lot of the public, like just out in the wild. I'm curious, like you must get a lot of folks. I would imagine a lot of folks want to talk about. Stellar and the Batman films, the end of Inception. What's your stock answer when someone comes up to you at Starbucks and is like, Christopher, what happened at the end of Inception? <laughs> I haven't been asked that in a while, thankfully. <laughs> uh, I went through a phase right after the film came out where I was uh, asked it a lot. Um, every now and again, I would make the mistake of getting caught outside the screening where everyone was coming out, you know. Uh, it's <laughs> Three hours later. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I think it was Emma who, who sort of pointed out the correct answer really is that the character, Leo's character, the point, the point of the shot is the character doesn't care at that point. Right. And that, that's really the, the best answer I've ever come up with. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not a question I... I comfortably answer. It's that. nice to be in the pantheon of like, you know, that kind of like Quentin gets like the briefcase at the end of Pulp Fiction, Sophia gets what did Bill Murray whisper. <laughs> there are a handful of these. It's definitely fun to be a part of that, that great canon, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you're a gambling man, Christopher. I, I have a bet for you. Only professionally. Yeah. <laughs> $20 says you're going to direct the next Bond movie. $20? $100? What do you want to do? I'm, I'm, I'm a working I'm, man. I, this, you know, I, I couldn't possibly uh, take a bet like that. Because um, you don't want to take my money, or because <laughs> I wouldn't want to define my whole career on whether or not I get to take $20 from Josh. 
So are I'd, we any... I'd like to be able to keep a clear head if I'm ever asked to direct a Bond film. I, I see. That would influence. I don't want to get... I'd lose that. <laughs> the I guilt of to... taking my money. Exactly. Is it... I, see. I wouldn't want to fork over that $20. Uh, In all seriousness, it feels like yes. this is the time. We've talked before about this. And you've said when, when they need say, me... what did I say last time? You've said when they need me, when yeah. the time is right, great. If not, you know, you've been very diplomatic about it. Yeah. They're well, not diplomatic. I mean, honest about it. I, I love those movies. The, the influence of those movies on my filmography is embarrassingly apparent, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, so there's no, uh, no attempt uh, to, to shy away from, from that. I, I love the films and, um, you know, uh, it would be an amazing privilege to do one. At the same time, when you take on... Uh, a character like that or work like that, you're working within a particular set of constraints. Yes. And so, you know, you, you have to have the right attitude towards that. It has to be the right moment in your creative life where you can express what you want to express and really burrow into something within the appropriate constraints because you would never want to take on something like that and sort of do it wrong. It's the kind of responsibility I felt very much taking on Batman. Of course. Um, and I would imagine you'd want to be involved in casting your... Bond, well, everything. Session. I mean, you don't, you know, the, the thing, you wouldn't want to take on a film not fully committed to what you could bring to the table creatively. Um, so as a writer, casting, you know, everything, that's the sort of full package. Um, but no, I, I sort of stand with the previous answer, which is that, you know, um, you'd have to be really needed, you'd have to be really wanted in terms of bringing the totality of what you, right. you bring to a character. Otherwise, I'm very happy to to be first in line to see whatever they do. You know. The rumor lately is one of your previous cohorts, uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson. We'll see if he ends up being the man. Well, he's a great actor. He's a great actor. Um, did you ever, uh, I assume you caught up with Matt Reeves, the Batman with Robert. Um, what was it like watching that take? Did it feel like he found his own lane apart from? I'm not gonna get drawn on, on other people's superhero movies. Okay. It's, uh, Fair enough. It's, there's too much gravity to that, and then nobody <laughs> talks about Oppenheimer. It's like, that's what I'm here saying. Fair enough, fair enough. No, that's okay. But I do want to... Uh, I will you... say that, you know, Rob is a terrific actor, and yeah. Matt is a great director. But, and uh, then you had Bar Barry in there, too. Playing... Barry. The great Barry Keoghan. Exactly. Remarkable. Um, this is obviously for Universal, and I remember one project that I think was at Universal way back when was The Prisoner. Is there any chance you might go back to The Prisoner? Well, I, I first met Donna Langley at Universal. Well, I met her even years before, but, but yeah, we had developed The Prisoner um, and not, not cracked it. Um, but so I'd been wanting to work with Universal for a while, so uh, it's kind of fun to be there with Oppenheimer. Um, I wouldn't want to say anything really about what I'm going to do next or what I'll do in the future, because the truth is I haven't figured it out. Um, <laughs> That's no, I, yeah. I, I get asked that, you know, particularly as you, as you come to promote the film and, and you're doing interviews, you often get asked, by disbelieving yeah. interviewers, no, know. you know. Uh, but the, the truth is, I do one thing at a time, and I borrow in on that very obsessively. And for me, and one of the reasons I make films for the cinema is the film's not finished until it goes to the audience. Yes. It's the audience who finishes the film, and they tell you what it is. And until you know what the film you've made is, it's a little difficult to know what you do next. by now you're, you're pretty involved in, in um, marketing and you have much of a say there in terms of how you want your films presented to the public and what you're, the story you're trying to tell. Um, are you a fan of movie trailers generally? 
I mean, I grew mm. up just obsessed with movie trailers. I love movie trailers. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really fun thing to be um, involved in in trailers for your own movies. I love trailers for everybody's movies. No, I I love movie trailers. It's a really, it's a it's a crazy art form of its own. And these editors and and I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of really talented marketing executives and great editors yeah. working for them, and they're able to work in this extraordinarily tiny way where they're just changing individual frames and shifting a whole feeling, you know, to try and distill, in the case of Oppenheimer, they're trying to distill a three-hour film into, you know, two and a half minutes, or now, you know, 30 seconds, 15 seconds. Work. Yes. Uh, it's a really fun thing to watch them work. Do you have a favorite trailer that you can recall off the top of your head, uh, whether it's of your own films that someone's done, or even growing up, like, a, a trailer that really I wouldn't want to talk about my my own films because I I'm very proud of a lot of the work that the the marketing departments have done, uh, both at Warner Brothers, at Universal, Disney, the different Paramount, the different studios I've worked at. Um, but in terms of other people's, I the original uh, TV spot for Ridley Scott's Alien stuck in my head in a in a major. Is that in space? Um, no one can hear a scream, or is that, what's well, that's the, the tagline. Tag but, but it yeah. involves this crazy. They they built some kind of crazy model of the egg right. on this landscape that the camera's flying over, and then the egg cracks and the light comes through at the end. And I I don't remember the the name of the marketing executive responsible for that, um, but it's an extraordinary piece of editing and sound design. I'll never forget. The, the, the teaser for Alien 3 that was made so early in the process that they were teasing that the alien was coming to Earth. And that clearly, as yes. anyone that has seen Alien 3, it did not come to Earth. No. <laughs> Talking about well, marketing and, getting ahead and of They a had a wonderful trailer that still had a shot of, I think it was probably Charles Dance carrying Ripley in from an exterior into the facility. And, and I think as that film changed and changed, and you know, Fincher has famously talked about how unhappy he was with it and how it changed. I think it's a great movie, but yeah. I think his work on that is remarkable. But yeah, that marketing campaign wound up being very out of step with what <laughs> the, the film is. But the materials were extraordinary. I mean, they, yeah. the trailers were, were fabulous. Do you think, okay, look, you're, you're, you, we have many great Christopher Nolan films to come. You were young in your career, but like, do you think of the body of work and kind of the collection of Christopher Nolan films that you're presenting to the world? Are you of the, there's obviously the extreme on the Tarantino mm. realm where he's going to out at 10. And then there's like one of you know your favorites, like Ridley Scott, who's making mm. a Napoleon movie in his 80s, and George Miller, who's <laughs> making a Mad Max movie in his yeah. 80s. Like, Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, look, Quentin has his reasons, I'm sure. It, it, if he sticks to it, it's a, a remarkable degree of kind of self-discipline yeah. and, and self-perception. Um, personally, with my work, I try not to be overly self-conscious about it. That is to say, I just work on the one project. Right. Uh, I trust that if I put my all into it, there'll be some sort of worth to it. Um, more and more, you know, I mean, over the years, the writing of the film has become more and more important to me. And so that limits my ability to do what Ridley Scott's done, for example, and just jump from project to project because there's just a lot more time involved. Right. Um, with getting the script where you want it to be, uh, either on your own or, or with great collaborators I've worked with. Um, so no, I, I try not to be self-conscious about it. I, I like that there's a body of work that, that people seem to get something from and seem, yeah. like to revisit. I mean, really for me, the goal is with each film that you make a film that somebody might uh, enjoy the first time they see it, but then maybe years later, maybe come back to and watch it in a different way and find something else to it. Right. Uh, you know, I spend years on each project. 
So we put a lot into each project, a lot of layers, a lot of things going on. And that's just by, didn't, by virtue of how much time and effort is sort of put into it. Yeah. So the idea that a viewer then can revisit it, can get more out of it over time, I think is, is important. So that's sort of the goal. And if that's a thing that connects the films in some way, uh, that's, a, that's a fun thing as well. When I strip away kind of like the bells and whistles, and I know from talking to actors about your sets that like you somehow manage to keep it very intimate. It's often you and Hoyt and the camera operator and the actor, and it's not, it doesn't feel yeah. big despite what we see, end up seeing on the big screen. I'm curious, like if I went back, if I was eavesdropping on the set of Memento, one of the early films, how different was your methodology then versus now? What are the market differences in how you are on set, you think? I think that no differences at all, honestly, uh, in reality. I think that when I was doing following, um, and funnily enough, we, we have a, a Blu-ray coming out, a re-release of, of following, nice. and I've just watched some of the interviews of the extras with you know, cast and crew and everything. And uh, it, it was very interesting to revisit that process because you know, that was as small a film as you can make. The entire crew and cast and equipment would fit in the back of a London taxi. We'd right. go on a weekend, shoot a scene, you know, process the film, edit during the week, go back the next weekend. We were all doing other jobs. You know, it was as far from what I do now as you could possibly get. Right. But in re-examining that process for that release, I look at it and I'm like, it's the same process, same creative process. Yeah. And that's an important thing for young filmmakers to realize when they're starting out that Films are not, each film you do, it's not some, I, I hate that phrase, a calling card film that right. used to bandy around, you know, or that a film is a stepping stone to a bigger film or whatever, which is nonsense. If you're making a film, enjoy it and appreciate it for the filmmaking experience that it is, because it's as valid as anything you would ever get to do with a bigger budget or huge stars or whatever, and that's, that's just the truth, you know, it, it really is. It's like you're, you're looking at what's in the frame, how can this shot advance the audience is feeling and understanding what the narrative is and, and then finding the next shot after that. And that, that process really hasn't changed over the years. Is there, if I granted you the power to visit any film set in the history of film, Christopher, just to eavesdrop on how it was mm. made, where would you want to go? I'd hate to be on anybody's set. <laughs> I hate visiting sets. I, you know, I feel so awkward. I'm not. It's a private process. You want to respect that for the, the filmmaker. The filmmakers who maybe enjoy visitors, I'm, I'm not really one of them. But, really? Well, it, to me, it's a private process. It gets a little self-conscious when people are watching you direct because the, the directing is not the thing. The, yes. The story that results is the thing. Um, and so I get very self-conscious on other people's sets. And there's a demystifying thing that I'm both fascinated by. So you think, what an incredible thing to be able to see. But you're also, you know, you're, you're seeing behind the curtain. You're seeing right. that there's no great Oz there. And I don't think with the films I love, I don't think of any desire to do that. Uh, and I kind of enjoy the fact that with, I don't know, 2001, for example, there's not much behind the scenes. You know, there's right. stills and we carefully pour over any still, a little bit of film that comes out, you know, about that. Right. Uh, but there's something that keeps the magic of that film alive in that, you know, you don't have full access yeah. to what what the thing is. That's why know? that like uh, what's that like that twenty five minute like behind the scenes of The Shining always <laughs> sticks out at me. It's like what like this actually yeah. someone 
he let the camera roll. It's well, he let his daughter roll That's the camera true. on it. Yeah. I think gave her a little more access than he ever would have. But in it in itself is a fascinating document. I yes. mean, it's it's attention. It's like you want to open your Christmas presents early, but you don't really want to spoil the surprise. It's right. kind of that. Um, but no, so there there are a lot of sets that I would be fascinated to visit, but but I know that it wouldn't it wouldn't benefit me enormously. So coming full circle here, um, just seeing now your friend, your collaborator, the sixth go around, to see what Killian, how he holds the screen, how he holds this all together, because it is yeah. so, as you say, subjective for a good portion of it. Mm -hmm. um, does anything surprise you of what he can do or what he was able to do when you get into the edit room and you see what he's delivered here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's a peculiar, it's a, it's a peculiar process because I've known for a long time, I've known for 20 years that Gillian Murphy is one of the greatest actors of his generation yeah. or any generation. And I've had him play key supporting roles in a lot of my films. I've enjoyed that process. So I had a lot of confidence going into Oppenheimer that yeah, he's, he's one of the greats. This is his chance to show what he could do at the center of a, of a big movie like this where the challenge is to carry the audience through the experience, see everything from his point of view. So you're looking for this great empathetic sort of version of the character that can, can draw you into what he's thinking and feeling. Um, but there's a difference between having faith that that can work, seeing great work on set every day, yeah. but until you actually put it together in the other suite, you don't, with a performance as sophisticated as Killian's, until you actually sit in the other suite and watch it, come together shot by shot, you, you're not aware of all the things he's managed to do. So editing the film was a pretty extraordinary revelation about the power of the performance and the layers he was able to put in. And uh, it's one for the ages. It's an absolutely remarkable piece of work on his behalf that I'm proud to have been a part of. The last thing, a specific thing on Oppenheimer I, I meant to ask earlier, mm. the Trinity test sequence I do want to mention because I think what you do with sound design in that and holding back and kind of like, I'm anticipating no a certain- No spoilers, please. Okay, well, okay. We don't have to go specific. <laughs> it, well, it's funny to talk about spoilers in a true life story and, and a thing that you know to be inevitable, but um, But I I'm guess hoping... was it obvious like how you were going to approach that? Because there are a lot of different ways no, you could No, no, it, it, it wasn't obvious. The only thing that was obvious is that it had to be a showstopper and it had to be the centerpiece of the film. Yeah. It's a turning point in human history, the turning point in human yeah. history. and so. A lot of effort went into the research, the mechanics, the looking at, okay, how's that going to work together? Uh, and then, of course, when you look at the reality and the reality of the physics, there are things that pop up that you have to just embrace and say, okay, rather than maybe what people would expect, the reality is going to be way more surprising and interesting if we can get it across. And so right. then you're challenging, you know, Hoyt van Hoytman, Ruth de Jong, the designer, um, you know, you're looking to your department heads to be able to create an approach to this that people haven't seen before. And my hope is that people get to come to the film fresh without, uh, without knowing everything about how we portray things. Uh, yep. But, I mean, you know, who knows? But, but yes, I'm certainly an enormous amount of care and attention and, and a lot of long nights shooting uh, uh, went into that. It was, uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Well, as you said at the start, I mean, um you know, we, we feel it. We feel your soul, your mind, the time, the effort. It's, it's, it's almost the screen in it. It does immerse an audience and it's a, it's a, it's a powerful piece of work and it demands attention. It's gonna see, demand my attention a few more times. Um, I always appreciate the time, man. I love talking movies, your movies, movies in general with you. You're one of the best. 
Um, thank you, as always, Christopher. Thank you. All right. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha, <laughs> ha,